Well, make no mistake, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, from our good God in heaven, and he loves bestowing on us good gifts. Amen? Amen. Now, there's just one problem, and that is we as humans like looking in just about every other place than in our good God. Why is that? Oh, man. There's this, there's this uh, sin nature that all of us have, and we're born into it, and we struggle with it our entire lives. And yet, there is a victory that we have in Christ that we can begin to experience right now that has true, radical, lasting effects. And we don't have to wait until the other side of eternity to experience those. And that's what the Apostle Paul has been writing this church in Corinth. See, they, like us, were struggling with this new identity of who they are in Christ. That they've been remade. They've been born again. That they've been washed and sanctified. And so if you've been joining us from the beginning, you know in chapter 1, even in verse 2, Paul is saying to the church, those who have been sanctified, you've been washed, been called to be holy. And then we've been enriched in every way. And so he can speak of it as it's something that we already are. And so the next four chapters, you know that the church has been kind of struggling in a variety of different ways. They've been elevating individuals in the church and uh, they've kind of had this arrogant attitude about them that they're holier than thou or they're more important than they are. And they've just been struggling. So the apostle Paul is writing them. And today he's going to be encouraging them to become more of who they already are. And you know, that kind of sounds a little bit interesting to us, doesn't it? To become more of something you are. How does that work? How do you become more of your true identity? Has anyone ever struggled with that? It's a real reality of living this Christian life. The idea of sanctification, it's an ongoing process. And yet it's something that has finally and firmly happened in Christ. Before we get into the text today, we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. You can flip there. You can look on uh, those online. You can pull it up uh, on your screens in front of you. But I, I just want to ask a quick question. How many of you guys love awkward conversations? <laughs> a lot of you guys love awkward conversations. No hands up. All right. Well, let me save you an awkward conversation this week. Because today, we're going to be talking about a PG-13 topic. We're going to be talking uh, about some adult subjects. And so, if there is little ones with you today, I want to encourage you, take them over to the uh, children's uh, environment. That'll be an age-appropriate way, unless you want to have some discussions uh, this, <laughs> this week with them that you may not be ready to have. And so, uh, that's where we're going today. And I don't see anybody standing up. And if you want to catch the sermon later in the week, feel free. We put it online. But here is uh, the big idea for the text today. Start out with this. Paul calls Christ treasurers, those who love Jesus, to live 
like they have been changed. Why? Because they really have. The Holy Spirit has been put inside of them, and they've really been changed. And that includes confronting any illicit sexual behavior or any arrogant attitudes that compromise our identity in Christ. And so, Paul is going to write these Corinthians that they are struggling in an area that a lot of us struggle with. And it's something that we're going to dig into today, but first let us read the text. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled... In the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so, Father, we do ask that you would continue your regenerative cleansing washing work in us, in our physical bodies, but in this spiritual body, this church. Lord, may we be holy and set apart for every good gift and experience every joy that you want us to give to us. But may it be holy and pleasing and glorifying in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's children said, amen. Well, what's going wrong? Well, honestly, a lot's going wrong <laughs> in this church, and some of which we can relate to, and some may, may honestly just even uh, test the bounds of what we think is even possible. Uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about. But there's some things going wrong in Corinth, and the first of which is Paul says it's actually reported. I want you to get a sense of what, what, what he's saying. He's saying, I cannot believe what I'm hearing. And not just me, maybe Chloe's people, you know, that we, we heard about came and reported back to Paul, or it could have been Stephanus and his household. Some people are spreading back to Paul what people are hearing in the Corinth community. It's actually spreading around what is happening in this church. And so he's hearing about it. There's an outrageous but true rumor that is spreading about lewd behavior in the church. And he goes on and says it's sexual immorality that's among them. 
And this word here for sexual immorality is this word. It's called porneia. That's what it means, sexual immorality or evil behavior. It's where we get our word porn from. It comes from right here in this text and other instances in Scripture. And here's the reality in our culture, guys. Something that God clearly in his word calls immoral, calls out of bounds, calls outside of what God's people should be known for, has almost become so commonplace and cuddly that we kind of dismiss it just as a normal thing happening in our life. You know, this was not the case 30 years ago, let's say. Man, I was uh, only eight years old, so I can't speak authoritatively uh, at that point. But, you know, even just in my lifetime, I have seen this change with, with pornography. And it has just inundated so much of our life. And it's fascinating to me. You know, the issue with pornography or any other sexual sin, and it's not even just pornography that, that you look up on a specific website, and it could be the books you read, it could be the TV that you're consuming, it could be the conversations that you're having, illicit material. And you know, our brains are wired such that we take those images in and we kind of catalog it. It's not like you can just have an innocent look at something. It actually sticks in there. It's only by God's grace and his cleansing that that stuff gets purged. But the problem with pornographic material is that it degrades human dignity. And it ruptures relationships. And it steals your joy. The shame that you experience afterwards from indulgence is something that God intends through his Holy Spirit to convict us. And yet we can almost become so accustomed to it that we try to null, nullify those feelings. But here's the truth. We are all tempted in a variety of ways. Just by a show of hands, how many of you guys have never been sexually tempted? Women? Anybody? Everybody is tempted in this area of sexuality. We've been made as sexual beings, and God has ordained and orchestrated this thing so that a husband and wife can enjoy the beautifulness of procreation, but just the, the, the excitement, the fun of intimacy. And we all have that desire to be intimate with others, with the Lord, spiritual intimacy, Physical intimacy with others and relational intimacy. And so we kind of seek it in ways that aren't helpful and are actually counteract what it is that we need. So just the idea of the prevalence of pornography, I want to kind of uh, maybe for some of us uh, illustrate the pervasiveness that has happened over these last 30 years. It's not an isolated thing. It's something that affects the whole gamut of age groups, uh, different um, all the way from youth, even to those who are older. And so this was a recent Barna study, and he's a Christian statistician. 
and he interviewed a number of Christians for this study, as well as a few non-Christians. But here's what he found. He found that 62% of teenagers have received a sexual image via their cell phone. What that means is that it was either downloaded or it was text to them. So parents, please, please be aware of what your children are looking at. There's a lot of software and and even uh, the mobile phone carriers allow you to curate, to have control of what can be seen and not seen. And I know kids are sneaky too because I was one of them. (laughs) Trying to get around that internet software and... (laughs) You're not fooling anyone though, right? All right. Three out of four Christian young adults ages 18 to 24, are actively looking at pornography on the internet. 75% are actively. That means weekly or at least a cadence, something pretty regularly. I want you to think about the formation that's happening in a mind that is indulging in that and engaging in that behavior in a regular way. What does it teach you about the value of relationships? What does it teach you about how you should interact or or, or how you should esteem others? And unfortunately, you know, our brain is still forming in these ages and it's just hard to rewire once it's engaged in. Then lastly, three out of five divorces cite the use of porn as a major factor which disrupted the relationship. And I can see some head nodding here. We've seen that in people's lives. And we know the weight and the issue with it. And I want you to hear from me today that everyone struggles in this area. And if you're struggling, welcome to the human race. We all struggle in a variety of ways, and I'm no different. There was a period of my life Several years where I was engaged in looking at porn. And it didn't give me what I was looking for. Gave me a lot of shame. Taught me a lot of non-ways to that I should relate to others and my future spouse. It was not helpful. In fact, very harmful. And so if that's you, if you're struggling, I want you to hear two things. One is that there is a way out. Just in another chapter, in chapter 6, Paul's going to be talking to the Corinthians. And he's going to give them this verse that was so important in my spiritual development, in my life. He's going to tell them that no sin has overtaken you except is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape as well so that you can endure it. I want you to hear, our God is faithful. Faithful, say that with me. Faithful, faithful. What does that mean? He always gives us a way out. If you are feeling defeated, burdened, uh, shame-ridden, know that is not from our God. He desires your freedom. And he's given you the way out. And there's a lot of ways out. But it all 
revolves around giving your life to him. Being willing to follow him. Follow his word for your life. So there is a path. And secondly, I just want to tell you real practically, if you're struggling in this area, please come talk to me. Talk to one of the staff members here. There's not going to be the judgment. This is a safe place for us to talk about how you can actually deal with that in your life. There's also a lot of good resources out there on the internet, but I'm going to tell you to be careful <laughs> when you're looking at struggling with pornography, other stuff might come up. And so you got to be, got to be careful, but there's resources out there. Covenant Eyes is a software. Triple uh, X Church is, is a church that actually uh, kind of works with the pornography industry trying to reach them. And so there's just resources out here. There's also an SA group that meets on our campus. And that is kind of the AA for those struggling with sexual uh, addictions or addictive behavior there. And so there's freedom possible. I want you to hear that. And you know why I know? Because I'm living in freedom. I don't struggle with porn anymore. You know why? Because of God. He's that good. He can give you freedom. And it's a sweet thing. And it's possible for you as well. So Paul goes on. And the type of sexual sin that these Corinthians were struggling with was of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. Wait a minute. What? Man, those outside the church are looking at the church and saying, that's nasty, dude. <laughs> what are you thinking? So, unbelievers even think this type of conduct is unconscionable. And so if you think your sin is nothing new under the sun. For a man has his father's wife. On the count of three, guys, let's all say you. Ready? One, two, three. Ew. Gosh. Incest. That's what he's dealing with. The Apostle Paul, man, as, as church leaders or those who are laboring in, in, uh, in this Christian life, you're encouraging others, man. Don't ever grow weary because <laughs> the Apostle Paul, man, he dealt with this stuff as well. And when we're walking alongside others, know that this is normal. This is the thing that happens in a broken world. Sin disrupts, right? So real life, real stuff. So for a man has his father's wife. Here's what I believe this means. It means that a believer is sleeping with his mother-in-law, okay? Now to kind of uh, pull that apart a little bit. Uh, the, the phrase uh, a man has means it's ongoing. So he hasn't given it up. Uh, uh, your father's wife, meaning uh, it referencing an Old Testament passage in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where the prohibition against anyone sleeping with his father's wife is the phraseology. And the implication is these Corinthians should have known better. They have the Old Testament scriptures. They should have known that that is not permitted. And then the idea of it being uh, mother-in-law and not the mother, it's not exactly sure in the text. Could be his mom, and that's even grosser, all right? <laughs> Let's just be honest. But probably his mother-in-law, and the reason why uh, mother-in-law is because of that phrase, uh, your father's wife. I mean, if it was his mother, it would probably just say mother. Make sense? So it's probably step there. But this is what's happening in, in the church. And so Paul's addressing it. 
Now, here is the thing that he cannot believe. He cannot believe that they are arrogant about it. So you have this sexual sin that all of us would probably admit, man, that's not good. And yet, the church itself is the one that he takes a bigger issue with. You are arrogant. You, the body, the believers, you're arrogant about this. How could that possibly be? So these Christians are condoning the behavior with an arrogant attitude and a hands-off approach. It's almost unthinkable that, that this could happen in the church. And yet, if we think it's that far removed from the culture that we're swimming in today, I want you to encourage you to think again. You know, I was listening uh, recently to a politician, well-known politician out here in California, and they were asked kind of what gives them the motivation, the passion to do what they do and kind of undergirds their, their thoughts about right and wrong and where they want to steer the, the uh, state. And what they quoted was a proverb from the ancient Near East and it had nothing to do with scripture, had to do with another religion. And what they said is that I envision an open field. And some of you guys have maybe heard this ideology before. But an open field has the imagery of everyone kind of getting in there and then spreading out a little bit, arm's distance away, where you're not interfering, you're not interrupting, and you just kind of make your place in there, and there's no boundaries, there's nothing out there for the eye to see, nothing is off limits, as long as you don't hurt the person next to you, you're good. No right and wrong. Everything goes. Their motivation. It is here in our culture. And it's called antinomianism. And it was a heresy that was in the early church and has continued in various forms uh, throughout church history, but also just in our culture. Antinomianism means against the law. Like uh, you are not for laws. Like you are over laws. Like you don't even think they matter. Like, there is no boundaries. Are we tracking? Makes sense? Now, you kind of sense that there is this idea of freedom in Christianity. And so you can kind of sense that this is maybe what they were struggling with. That what does that freedom actually mean? Well, I can tell you one thing it does not mean. It does not mean you are free from moral law. Never means that. Christ did not come to abolish the law, right? He came to fulfill it. And we are under the law of Christ as Christians. And so we want to be a beacon of, of righteousness, of uprightness in, in our culture. So we are freed from sin, but we are freed for following Jesus. That makes sense? So they were using their newfound freedom in Christ to flaunt their perceived idea that they didn't have any bounds. They were using it as a license to sin. I was thinking about it this week, and you kind of think about it as uh, the get out of hell free card. 
And they were playing that, that, oh, man, being a Christian is great. <laughs> you don't have to follow any rules. It doesn't matter what my brother and sister over here are doing. I don't care. If they like it, go for it. And it can seep into the church. And so what's the right response to wrong behavior? And especially of the serious kind that Paul is talking about here. He writes to them, he says, Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. So he gives them two encouragements. But the undergirding, I want you to catch this. His heart, Paul is a, a pastor. He is their father in the faith. He is someone who cares deeply for them, and he's been transformed. He has the right heart for these believers, right? And we just got done with that in chapter 4. He's talking about him being a father. And so he's saying a loving response. Loving response to serious sin includes grieving its consequences. And if you can look at sin and it doesn't affect you, that is a dangerous place to be. It means that you don't care. You just don't care. And that's never the response as the one who was willing to suffer and die on the cross for us. And he did it to make us holy, set apart, created anew. The second thing is acting promote the best interest of everyone involved and impacted. And hear me on this. It's not just for the best interest of the community of faith. It is in the best interest of the individual who is perpetrating this crime, this immoral action. It is for his best interest as well to be removed. And we're going to see that. So he says, Paul, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. But I thought as Christians, we're not supposed to judge. Anyone ever heard that? And we hear it all over our culture. Judge not, lest you be judged. Wait, that isn't scripture. Uh, <laughs> what is he talking about here? I've already pronounced judgment. What he's talking about is our brothers and sisters. We have not just rights as believers. We have responsibilities as believers. Oh, it is the best life. You get connected in with power on high and you overflow with joy in this life. There is nothing better than being in the body of Christ. And you have innumerable brothers and sisters who have your back, who are encouraging you, who are helping you live this life. But you better believe we are our brother's keepers. We do have a responsibility to encourage them to live this life right, to walk that narrow road. It's not an open field. Jesus says it's a narrow road that we're following him in this life. And so you absolutely can pronounce judgment. And the spiritual person we learned earlier in this letter judges all things, constantly discerning, checking in with God and the Holy Spirit. Lord, is this what you would have? And so... Paul is saying, condemning unmistakably inappropriate behavior in the family of faith, not those outside the body of Christ. Why? Because that's God's domain, right? He's going to deal with them. We don't have to spend time and effort condemning all of them. Their judgment is sure. 
if they're not in the body of Christ, right? But inside the family of faith, it's necessary to promote the unity, integrity, and growth of our church. The growth of Christ's body is condemning unmistakably inappropriate behavior. And he goes on, and he says, So when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. So this is a solemn assembly. They're taking action, and it is appropriate and affirmative and decisive. He says, you are to hand, you are to deliver, hand over this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And there's a lot there. I'm going to tell you what I think it means, and this is what I'm pretty sure it means. Removing those who are recklessly pursuing an immoral lifestyle is aimed at helping and not harming them. We're not doing anyone any favors by not encouraging them to live in love with Jesus. Remove those who are recklessly pursuing an immoral lifestyle. Nobody's going to live perfectly. Nobody. He's not talking about shaming those who are already remorseful and repentant and want to get out of that lifestyle. No, 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 no. You, you accept those back, you encourage them, and, and you love on them. Those who refuse, in Matthew 18 kind of uh, form, refuse to actually repent and get out of that lifestyle. They are doing disservice to themselves and to the body. Destructive. And so you, you, you have to remove them. Some important implications for us in the church. And the first one is this. We need godly men and women who are courageous to call out sin. And love others enough to hold them accountable for the benefit of all. You and I are brothers and sisters keepers. It is a scary thought to think that if you can't be encouraged to live holy inside the church, where do you go? <laughs> Man, there's no hope. It should be here. In the family of faith, we deal with stuff. We bring it to the light because there's healing in the light. Not shame in the light. There's healing. Truth sets you free. doesn't keep you in bondage. Then secondly, we must take the log out of our own eye so that we can see clearly to take the speck out of our brothers. Nobody likes a hypocrite. Nobody listens to a hypocrite. And so when we're calling out sin, we have to do a self-assessment. Where are we in this thing? Am I, am I right with the Lord? Is my conscience clear as we take this step to actually address it? Now, now here is what I'm afraid of sometimes in the church. And, you know, I grew up in the church. The church didn't necessarily grow up in me for the first part of my life, but uh, I was in it and kind of became accustomed to it, and I could speak the language. And I kind of discerned early on that if you don't call out sin, guess what happens? They won't call out sin in your life. And so it's this cool trade-off, right? Hey, you can do that thing as long as you don't tell me not to do that thing. And so the mutual encouragement is actually denigration. It's the opposite <laughs> of pursuing holiness. And so truly way to follow Christ is to deal with the sin that he calls out in our, our lives, in our hearts. 
And if we have the Holy Spirit, he's going to show us. And then to take a step in and to address it. And then while you're growing, while you're on that journey, encouraging others to follow suit with you. So why does right living really matter? Well, I kind of view it a, a little bit like this. If you are walking along and your brother, your sister is walking right to the right of you and you're outside and you're along this path and you can see up ahead that there's a landmine and you recognize there's a landmine and so you kind of steer clear. You go over to the, the left a little bit and you're good. You're okay. But you notice that your brother or sister getting dangerously close to stepping on a landmine. And the problem with stepping on a landmine is that it not only affects you irreparably, it affects all those around you. And shrapnel is sent everywhere. And in the church, sin is that landmine doesn't just affect you. In our individualistic culture, we think we can look at a screen and that somehow just me and that screen, no one else is affected. And it's a lie. It affects you. It affects your family. It affects everything because it's your character and you bring your character to everything. So why does right living really matter? Paul's going to say this, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What he's saying, just using different imagery, is that sin is cancerous and it spreads widely. You know, my Aunt Debbie, who I, who I loved and who was influential, she was a prayer warrior who got to see the fruit of her prayers. She prayed for me for years. And before the Lord took her home, he answered that prayer. And many, many people are in heaven because of her, her prayers and the way she lived. She got cancer a few years ago. And once it was discovered, I'm, I'm telling you, it progressed rapidly. And it spread all through her body. And I asked her at one point, and Debbie, um, how painful is it? She said, on a scale from 0 to 10, it's a 20. And my heart sang. 20. Lord took her home just a few weeks later. And it was quick. Guys, our life is a vapor. And it goes quick. And it matters how you live. Because that sin, as it was cancerous to her body, and it spread everywhere, same thing happens in the body of Christ. When we bring sin in, it not only affects us, it spreads to others. Toxic. So he says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Cleanse out. He says, get rid of it. Don't entertain it. Don't like just uh, look at it. Don't just think about it. Actually do something about it. Get rid of it. Get it out of there. 
And in this context, he's talking about the individual. But for us, he's talking about any sin in our lives. That's the principle that he's referencing here. And he says that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. You know, the Israelites, when they were being set freed from uh, captivity to Pharaoh, they were encouraged to sweep out all the leaven from their home. This is Exodus chapter 12. So get rid of it because it's going to happen so quickly that uh, you don't even need to wait for the bread to rise. You're going to have unleavened bread and you're going to be able to take that with you. And so the leaven is the old stuff. It's the old life. It's that old junk that weighed you down. It's the condemnation that we continue to bring in our new life as baggage. And God has told us, you've been freed from it. You can lay down the baggage. You don't have to take it with you. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In the Old Testament, they put that blood on the doorposts to symbolize the covering, the washing, the cleansing. Once and for all, God dealt with the sin in Christ. And in doing it, he brought in a new creation that we no longer are slaves to sin. We've been freed from it, just as the Israelites were. And so Paul is telling them that right living reveals who you really are. That you've been forgiven and free. Once and for all in Jesus Christ. And so anything that you choose to entertain is something that you can choose to do. But it's destructive and it'll keep you in bondage and it will not lead you to where God wants you to be. And lastly here, it says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This idea, being sincere, being authentic, having integrity, living with integrity, encourages others, your brothers and sisters and those outside these walls to taste and see how good God is. That he can take a sinner like me and he can make me new, a new identity, renewed. Nothing better. Nothing better. So here's the big idea. Don't miss it. Paul calls Christ treasures to live like they have been changed, which includes confronting illicit sexual behavior and any arrogant attitudes that compromise the integrity of who we are in Jesus. So this week, as you spend time with the Lord and consider what are ways that you can take Paul's words seriously here and apply it to our lives, First is to assess as a takeaway this week. Assess your current attitude towards sin in your life. How do you think about it? Do you think about it as, it's just there. Do you think about it as, that's not really that big a deal. Or do you think about it as, I cannot believe I gave into that again. 
Lord, help me. Where's your attitude towards sin? And then pray that God would help you get rid of any unholy complacency. Not that you're going to be perfect this side of heaven, but that we're in process and we're taking steps to move towards Jesus where freedom is found. And then I'd encourage you to seek guidance about how to best confront any sin in your life, whether it's sexual or otherwise. Seek guidance. Let others encourage you on this. We're not an island. We're brothers and sisters and can encourage each other in that. And then lastly, live in more freedom and joy by treasuring Jesus more than anything else because he truly is that good. He enriches us in every way. He has forgiven us once and for all and he allows us to live in freedom and joy in the here and now. What an amazing thought. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so grateful that you have rescued us. And this, not as a result of our own work, God. You came down in a divine rescue mission. And you accomplished our victory at Calvary. And, Lord, you have ushered in a newness of life. You've given us new names. You've created us and given us a new identity as sons and daughters of the king. And so we are family. We are brothers and sisters here. Lord, may we act like it. May your love be what binds us through the Holy Spirit. May others see the difference that it makes when you turn and trust and treasure Jesus more than anything else. All God's children said, and